Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And as always, the podcast is not only about how many medical pearls and how many factual knowledge pieces can you have to pass the board exam, but the podcast is all about wellness. It's all about feeling good. It's about helping others. It's about telling amazing stories. So today I wanted to kind of mix it up a bit. I'm always talking about, you know, the broader picture of medicine, but I wanted to have a guest that really encompasses that. And I really wanted to talk about things that we never get a chance to chat on, such as yoga, meditation, awareness, and mindfulness. So I think all these words definitely need the correct definition. So I needed to bring a guest who knows what they're talking about today. So we are super lucky that we have a friend, famous author, and it's going to be Anusha Kumar. I said it very fast to make sure I said it correctly, who's going to be our guest today. And when I talk about Anusha, I'm going to do a little reading as I always to kind of introduce my guest and then we'll do the formal introduction. So Anusha is a wellness consultant for leading hospitals and institutes in California, where she actively engages um, mindfulness and meditation practices for maternal mental health programs and cancer prevention and survivorship programs. She has delivered keynote speeches and led workshops on mindfulness and meditation for Fortune 500 companies. That's why I'm so lucky to have her here. And top-ranked universities across North America and the United Kingdom. Anusha is a board member of MOMS, M-O-M-S, Orange County, and she co-founded the movement of women of color and wellness, both of which focus on increasing diversity, inclusion, and accessibility in the yoga, mindfulness, and wellness communities. Anusha is a certified professional life coach and a registered yoga teacher. And with all that, Anusha, how are you doing? Uh, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. 
Well, I got to tell you, the, the, the treat is all mine. The treat is all my listeners. Now, before I ask you all the meet and greet questions, I got to warn you, this is going to, I sent out a, a feeler out there to let all my listeners know that you're going to be on my podcast. And I didn't realize that, you know, this mindfulness, it's a hot topic, Anusha. I mean, yeah, yeah it is. Right? It is, Dr. Raj. It really <laughs> is. <laughs> all right. So let's do the meet and greet part of things. So, uh, where were you born and how did you end up in wonderful Southern California? And give me a couple of details on the way. So I was born in London, United Kingdom. And uh, so that will always be home for me. But I've actually lived in four countries. So what? I also lived in Australia and New Zealand. And this is the fourth country, America, that I'm living in. And I moved to America 10 and a half years ago now. And quite honestly, what brought me from London to America was the weather. I was <laughs> not deal with the gray and the gloom and the dreariness. I was just over it. So I came to visit some family in April 2010 and fell in love with LA and kind of had uh, an epiphany really that this was where I needed to be. This was where the next chapter of my life uh, would unfold. And I talk about this in a lot more detail in my book, Meditation with Intention, which we'll talk about. So you <laughs> audience can read more about my journey in my book. But I actually then made the move within six months, everything fell into place, I was able to secure a job and sponsorship uh, to come and, and live and work in America. And I, you know, progressed from there, really. So I mean, in, in, is it a stereotype or is it truly raining and foggy in London all the time? And it was it the sunshine of Southern California? Did that bring you here? It did, but funnily enough, it's actually, I, I always have the weather for both London and Southern California on my phone and it's actually hotter. It's been hotter in London. You're kidding me. Week. You know, I'm not. We actually, they were having a better summer last week than we were. So that's global warming for you, but absolutely. So during the winter months, yep. it does rain a lot. It is dreary and it's gray. And so for me, living somewhere like Southern California, where yep. it really is sunny most of the time, yep. uh, and you don't have to worry about, I mean, the winter's so mild and pleasant. It's it's a joy for me because I'm also cold all the time as well. Though. <laughs> 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 so I was not at all, I would just whinge and moan every winter. And so I really, you know, by the grace of God have arrived in a place where I don't have to worry about that anymore. And I can be warm and uh, really enjoy this fabulous weather and lifestyle. Well, with that being said, with having all these countries under your belt and all these experiences, where in your journey did you realize that, hey, my calling is going to be, you know, the the wellness, including the yoga meditation? Was that from like, you know, almost from birth or was that something that you kind of picked up on the way or what did you want to be when you grow up? How did you get where you are? So yoga has made up the fabric of my life since birth. It's part of uh, our spiritual practice. So yoga is one of the Shaddarshanas, six philosophies associated with Sanatana Dharma or Hinduism. So really yoga has made up the fabric of my life, but not the yoga that we see portrayed in the West, which is asana, which is the physicality of the practice. That actually came much later to me. But certainly yoga in terms of dhyana, prayer, devotion, dharana, concentration, and even meditation and contemplative practices 
was something that we were doing from going to the temple, going to bhajans or kirtan as it's more popularly known in the West and sitting in periods of, of silence in the temple and during the time of, of bhajans where they would have that, where the lights would go down. And again, I talk about this in my book and we'd have moments of stillness and quiet. And so mantra practice I've been doing since I can remember as well. So a lot of the elements of, of what yoga really constitutes have made up the fabric essence of who I am and to me part of my I guess dharma which is the path of right conduct is decolonizing how we perceive yoga in the west because ultimately yoga is accessible to everybody irrespective of your religion your cultural background your race your ethnicity any of those things it is a practice that is openly available to anyone that's interested however because of this continual colonization and desecration of yoga in the West, people are really confused, Dr. Raj, with what is yoga. And I <laughs> honestly at Hogue Hospital with my patients, where when I talk about meditation and I say meditation is yoga, they're just confused. They're just like, oh, I could never do yoga. I'm not flexible. Oh, the yoga studio scares me. You know, all of those things that are problematic, quite frankly, in yoga with you know, ableism with the heteronormative views of, of what we see portrayed in mainstream yoga and wellness with white bodies that are physically able, that uh, are also very thin as well. And none of that has anything to do with what yoga really is. I like this. This is good. Wow. So yeah, let, me, let me do this. Yeah, and, and it's an important conversation that we need to be having more. And I think you know, this is why I'm so glad you're here, because I know that I could tell by the questions that my listeners have been asking, they need good foundation. You know what I mean? Because I think we have a misunderstanding of the terminology. So I, I these are my questions, because I want to make sure that I, I understand. So there are a couple words, and if you can make it really simple for me, that would be great, which is you kind of answered it a little bit. But if it's possible in a one liner, I mean, what is yoga? You know what I mean? It's such a broad term. And I feel bad putting you on the spot, but what is yoga? How do you explain it to a lay person? So if I was to just explain very simply what the word yoga actually means, it would be as follows. So it's a Sanskrit word. Sanskrit is the ancient language of India, which all of our Hindu scriptures are written in. The Yoga Sutras, Sage Pathanjali's classical yoga text is written in Sanskrit. And so the word yoga is a Sanskrit word, which I think that many people aren't even aware of, to be honest with you. So let's nope, begin I agree. That, right? Thank you God know, you're yoga. here. <laughs> yeah. Yoga originated in the Indian subcontinent. Our texts go back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So the word yoga itself is Sanskrit, and it comes from the root what the root yuj, the Sanskrit word yuj, Y-U-J, which means to yoke or unite. So the practice of yoga is that we are yoking or uniting the individual consciousness, which in yoga philosophy we call the Atman, the soul within, the Purusha, and we're yoking that to divine or universal consciousness, the Paramatma, right? So what that, And that can be the God of your own understanding. Okay. And God, be it source, spirit, light, the universe, mother, whatever you feel most comfortable connecting to. So that's what it is. But in yoga philosophy, that really means that the individual consciousness is merging with God. Universal okay. Consciousness. 
Ooh, now how are you going to answer this one? So we use this world quite a bit. I know that in a lot, I, I did my research. I saw a lot of your interviews. Mindfulness. What is that definition? Is it separate from yoga? Is it a spinoff? How do you, is it, because I always see yoga and mindfulness kind of in the same paragraph, at least. Can you explain to me? So mindfulness, to me, has been far more popularized within the Buddhist tradition. I mean, these oh. are all dharmic faiths, right? So dharmic faiths, we have Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and even Sikhism. So, you know, within Buddhism, mindfulness has become more popularized in the West. However, you know, meditation is yoga, and that's the disconnect. Now, to me, the the, the easiest way that I explain this to my patients at the hospital is meditation is when we are coming to a place of stillness and quiet. So we're not doing anything. We're coming to either sit or we're lying down and we're focusing on a meditation practice, be it one that we're just doing ourselves or perhaps you're listening to a guided meditation, which I highly recommend. I can share resources at the end. Mindfulness to me is when you are, you can be, you can be doing that or you can simply be connecting with your breath throughout your day, or you could even be doing it whilst working or cooking or gardening or biking or running. And so it's really bringing your mind into the present moment. I think the common misconception that people have is, is that meditate, people say to me, running is my meditation. That's not a meditation. That's a mindfulness practice. You know, cooking, ah. that's a meditation. people even say asana is meditation. Asana isn't meditation. Asana is the physicality of the practice of yoga. So the postural yoga, that's not meditation. That is ah. asana, that's movement, right? So you yes. can mindful movement but that's not meditation meditation within an asana class which is what we constitute as yoga in the west mm. is the final pose shavasana shava in sanskrit means corpse corpse pose so you're coming to lie down and metaphorically you're you're basically feeling that you are being reborn in a way. So every moment that we come to our mat, we are given an opportunity to let go of the old and invite in the new to have that individual consciousness, the Jivatma, connect with universal consciousness, the Paramatma. So we can really remember in terms of yogic philosophy, what we're doing, why we're here, what is the greater purpose of life, all of those questions that we might pose to ourselves throughout our lives. The philosophy of yoga so I, so I have a question. I'm getting into this now. So am I wrong? And you could just say I'm wrong. So mindfulness and meditation mean, though we inter wrongly interchangeably use these words, that meditation goes more with yoga itself and mindfulness, not as much so. With, is that correct or incorrect? No, I would say they're all intertwined. Okay. But people get very confused about what meditation is. Yes. And meditation is when we are not, we're not doing anything. So when we're not doing it, okay. Running and that's my meditation. That's not a meditation. That's a, you can say that's I'm good. having a mindfulness practice. Okay. Yes. When I'm running, right. Yep. I am bringing my mind into the present moment to focus on my run or cooking or gardening or, you know, whatever it might gotcha. be. Gotcha. Meditation is when we are coming to sit in stillness and in quiet and we're really beginning that inward journey without any external distraction so we're not doing anything 
Okay. Outside of ourselves. I'm loving this. Okay, so here's another word, and I'm sure many people want to know the meaning because they use it very frequently in many of these books I was reading. Chakra. What is chakra? I mean, people love saying it to sound like they know a lot, but can you die for us and what is chakra? <laughs> yeah, and again, I highly recommend your audience gets meditation with intention because this yeah. answers pretty much every single question you're asking. So chakra. Yeah. Chakra is also a Sanskrit word that means wheel basically. And these are seven energetic centers in the yoga philosophy. These are seven energetic centers located along the spinal column, beginning at the base of the spine, the Muladhara chakra, and going all the way up to the crown of the head, the Sahasrara chakra. And so there are different ways in which we can focus on balancing and energizing our chakras. And that is why the breath work, the pranayama, prana in Sanskrit means your breath, your life force is vital because you're getting into that spinal column, right? And we're right. focusing specifically on different types of, of breath work to bring the body into balance and alignment. Now, to your point, chakra has been completely misrepresented, overused, and, it, and it's, oh, I'm going to balance and align my chakra. <laughs> it's in every movie. Every movie they're yeah, talking about chakra. And it's chakra, not yeah. chakra. And uh -huh. so as a result of that, there again is that need to decolonize mm -hmm. what we perceive yoga to be in the West. And okay. That is the bulk of a lot of the work that I do within the yoga space outside of my work sure. working in intuitive medicine at Hogue. I then really work on teaching the importance of decolonizing our practice to honor the true essence of what yoga really is. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to quote you because I did some research. I'll let you know I did my due justice here. So there was a quote, and I want you to explain it to me, that you mentioned that, you know, bring that breathing brings the body and mind together, you know? And I thought that was really interesting in the sense that, you know, you only know me as a sleep doctor, but I do pulmonary. So, I mean, I know how important breathing is and how difficult it can be in certain, you know, disease states, but can you explain to me how just breathing can bring, we're just to talking about, you know, the words yoga and mindfulness and chakra and meditation and mind and body. So how can just breathing bring that together? How can you simplify I thought it was a very powerful statement. How, do, how can you explain that? And so what I would say is conscious breathing. So when we consciously, because we're breathing and we're, it's unconscious, we're not thinking about, for most of us, right? Obviously, some of you <laughs> right. that's, that's a different situation, yeah. Dr. Raj. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. for, for those, you know, for those of us like you and I, we're breathing, we're not consciously thinking about it, right? Yep. When I say breathing, breathwork, pranayama, it's conscious breathwork. So when we consciously take an inhale and consciously take an exhale, we are enabled to bring the body and mind together as one and to fully be present in that breath in that moment. And most of the time, because our breathing is unconscious, our body is here and our mind is here and here and here and here. And rarely are the two meeting. <laughs> they're not, you know, they're not, which is why yeah. we're living in a state outside of our body a lot of the time. And we're not even taking the time to tune in and notice, you know, what is happening in our mind? How am I feeling today physically, mentally, emotionally? We're just on this constant roller coaster of life. And so what I always encourage my patients to do at Hogue is to take 
at least three times a day, a mindful breath check-in, which can be done in 15 seconds, 60 seconds, literally oh, all right. just taking a moment right yeah. now to take an inhale, to take an exhale, and to bring the body and mind together as one to reset. So okay. remember when you told me that your computer was rebooting earlier? It was rebooting. That's, That's why I was late. I apologize. <laughs> no, that's what our breath enables us to do, Dr. Ryan. That's awesome. To reboot, to reset, be it for 10 seconds, be yeah. it for six seconds. It just enables us to kind of bring ourselves together, integrate within. Because when we are in that place of integration, balance, equanimity within, through the utilization of our breath, we're, we're able to interact with, you know, our family, our friends, our colleagues, and the world around us in a much more balanced state of mind than in the normal harried mess that we're all functioning out of. So, you know, just a random question, you know, I love listening to you. So when you give your lectures up in front of all these people and you talk about breathing, do you kind of laugh inside because do you see people practicing their breathing the exact same moment you're lecturing them? All of a sudden they start, they start taking deep yeah. breaths. Like. Yeah. yeah, or kind of, or, or what happens is people start to think, oh my gosh, I'm not doing it right, or how can I do it, you know? Yep. And, and the critic, right, the inner judge begins. And what I always say to everybody is there's really no right or wrong. You have to find a practice that works for you. And what works for you is what's best for you. And, and to really try to inspire people to, instead of sometimes following teachings or practices that are out of alignment or don't even feel good, sometimes people are, and you know this as a, as a physician, people do things that don't feel good because somebody told them to. A hundred percent. Like maybe tap in, like maybe don't do the 17 fad diets that are good for you. Right? Because your cousin, whoever told you blah, blah, and maybe really focus on tuning in, which meditation and mindfulness helps us to do and figuring out what, what works for you, what's resonating with you, what practice feels good in your body. And every day is different. So perhaps you know, the practice that worked for you yesterday might not be the one that you choose today. So have a few well said. that, you know, move between because some days we're feeling good and, and, and strong and some days we're not. We're tired and depleted and we're more stressed and anxious. Well, let's focus on this word. Let's focus on the word mindfulness. So I, I, mean, I was doing some research, you know, your your work. And so you made a really good um, statement. I wanted you to kind of expand upon this. So. In regards to mindfulness, um, in one of your lectures that I was watching, that you said that there are three central components to mindfulness, you know? And I mean, it's it sounds great, but I just wanted you if you could explain a little bit, because now that you defined mindfulness earlier in our, our talk about, you know, its difference from meditation, um, I kind of like this mindfulness. I like that I could do it, you know what I mean, in a short period of time throughout the day. So. You said that love, compassion, and non-judgment are the central components. So how do I integrate that with me trying to do mindfulness during the day? Can you explain? Of course. And so the three central components, as you mentioned, are love, compassion, and non-judgment. And that begins with ourselves. So 
pretty much very simply, how can we practice love? Self-love. How can we practice compassion? Self-compassion. How okay. can we practice judgment? Having non-judgment towards ourselves. And there's an ancient Buddhist proverb that says, we cannot give that which we do not have. So if I'm not feeling love and compassion and non-judgment in my own heart and mind, I'm really authentically and honestly not going to be able to give that to anybody else. And I'll be continuing to engage in the inner critic and the judge of others as I'm doing to myself. So all of these practices begin with ourselves. So then we can authentically share that with the world around us. And so, uh-huh. Does that make okay. sense? So, you know, and if people often think, well, what does that really mean when we break it down? It means that we're working <laughs> on turning down the inner judge and the inner critic. And like that's that. something that we could all <laughs> do better at. And, you know, noticing what's happening in our mind, noticing the thought forms that are arising. So we can begin to change our mindset and change our lives and really practice because many of us, you might be saying the right thing, but are you actually thinking that? Are you doing it? Are you, and and the practice of yoga is, are our thoughts aligning with our words and our actions? Are we living with integrity? Are we living with that connection to a higher source to guide us? Are we seeing the unity in all beings? And that's something that yeah. we have not seen in society. And so, you know, ultimately, if we break it down, we're all sparks of, of divinity, divine consciousness. But are we seeing that divine consciousness in others or are we only seeing it in people that look like us, that are from the same ethnic group as us, the same religion as us, the same cultural sure. group as us? And that's part of the problem. You know, what yeah. I've seen certainly in yoga and, and beyond is it's easy for people to have compassion for people that look like them. <laughs> it becomes far more problematic for those same people to have compassion for those who don't look like them. Yeah. And that's where the real practice of yoga is. Okay. Wow. So here, so at this point, what I wanted to do was open it up for some questions. Now, these questions were my, you know, my, the people who are so nice enough to download the podcast. So a big chunk of those are going to be, they're going to be some medical students, people who are going to college, maybe not decide they're going to be a doctor yet. Um, a, a whole potpourri of amazing people. So, and, you know, just by looking at the questions, you know, sometimes people may have actually misused the word meditation, mindfulness. So bear with us. So the first question for you, Anusha, is um, I want to meditate, but I'm not very good at it. What can I do? I don't know if you heard this. A very open ended. <laughs> what can they do? Yeah, I, you know, this is the co- this is I, and I love this question because this is the most common issue, question, problem that people uh feel so what mm-hmm. i have to say is meditation is for everybody and it's not about being good or being bad there really isn't a good or bad at meditation we take the judgment out of it every practice i have a long-term meditation practice every day is different some okay. days i'm able to, to to tune in quickly other days i'm not that's why dr raj we call it a practice we're practicing nice we are always a humble student of the practice anybody that tells you they're an expert in yoga <laughs> or meditation I would run away from because they've really missed the point of the practice. I'm always a humble student first. 
So what I would say to you is mm -hmm. let go of attachment to outcomes, let go of your perception of what you think meditation is and begin with a guided meditation because that takes the effort and the, the, you know, the hard work out of it. You can just press play. You're doing a guided meditation. They're incredibly effective because they take the effort out of it so you can do it with ease. I'll share my program that we're clinically testing at Hope Hospital with all of your audience. I also have a free meditation that's available via my website. Question. So terminology-wise, so a guided meditation is going to be when someone who knows what they're doing will, whether live in person or recorded or you know will will lead you on a journey and will help you nice okay oh i'm excited to you to get that information out so that's the good so people who are starting off they don't know what to do how to do it it's a good first step to go to a guided meditation yes absolutely all right here okay here's the next one um i you know i think <laughs> this one it sounds like it's a medical student so Will meditation make me too relaxed or spaced out to succeed at work and school? Anusha. And that's another, that's another great, you know, misconception because often what's portrayed in the film is like, yeah, meditating. It's almost, <laughs> it's almost like the, the next thing is, you know, they're smoking marijuana or whatever it is. So, you know, it's almost like misconception. Not that there's anything wrong with smoking marijuana. No, not, not at all. You know, not at all. Yep. But my point is, it seems to be that people associate all of that together. Like you're the hippie, you're at the burning mat, you're doing all of this weird, you know, this this stuff that isn't indicative of what meditation is at all. Quite frankly, meditation will help you to have more focus with precision and balance. I mean, I myself have seen that meditation only aids me in my daily life, but also in my career and at work. Okay. And it helps you really let go of all of the external noise and the distractions so that you can focus the mind on the task at hand. And I know that a lot of your audience as students, it can be so distracting, you know, to be yeah. trying to study for a test or trying to do, you know, an assignment and your mind is going in a hundred different directions. So the number one tip that I would give okay. audiences, put your phone away. They have that research has now shown uh -huh. that even when you are working on something, just having your phone next to you is a distraction and okay. you're more likely to pick it up, have the phantom, you know, notification syndrome where you think people are, <laughs> or, you, you know, your phone is even going off, you're like, well, let me just check, you know, just in case. And so what they're proving is just having your phone out and visible when you're trying to really concentrate and focus your mind is a distraction. So what I suggest and what I do myself is I have my phone away. Okay. So when I'm, I'm writing an article or I'm focusing on something that really requires a lot. In fact, even if I'm doing emails, I don't even have my phone visible. I want to focus. So I like it. Drawer, away somewhere where it's, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So you can actually focus on the task at hand. I like that one. Now, this one, I could have wrote this question because I'm curious about how you're going to answer this. Um, question is, how can I find the time to meditate in my busy schedule? You know what I mean? I'm sure that's everyone out there who's listening. And I want to know too, you know what I mean? I'm trying to balance, trying, trying to be a good doctor, doing a podcast, doing teaching. How do you answer that question? I'm sure that's a very common question. The most common question. And yep. I will say this, 
you might not have 60 minutes to sit and meditate. And quite frankly, I don't tell any of my patients or students to do that. What I say to everybody is, you've got five minutes. Nobody can tell me that they don't have five minutes because we spend five minutes <laughs> doing nonsense. We do. We're on social media. We're watching YouTube videos. We're looking at the animal memes. <laughs> you know, what I say to my patients no. is do all of that. But please don't kid yourself and tell yourself that you don't have time to spend five minutes in a meditation practice. And I myself, I'm a mother of a three-year-old. I have, I have my own business. I work at the hospital. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. I'm doing all of these things. I'm a wife. I've got my home responsibilities. Of course. Yeah. I find the time. So nobody can tell me <laughs> you don't have five minutes, really. And that's honestly the premise of the whole book, Dr. Raj, is you've got five minutes. And I yeah. spell out nine intentions, nine five-minute practices. Because and when I say this, you can see people that really want to say that they don't have five minutes. Like, yeah, no, I do. <laughs> That's I funny. Would, <laughs> and what I would say is, you know, we all find the time to do the things that we want to do in our day. Yeah. Really, yeah. Do we carve out time sometimes to do the things that we need to do? So, you know, do all of whatever you're doing. But please dedicate yourself to five minutes a day of a meditation practice because it can and will change your life. I see it daily in the lives of my patients. That's amazing. Here's an add-on question. It was a separate question, but it kind of led into it. And by the way, I got your book right here. I'm like fanning it, you know. Um, I, did, I will say this much. I, the thing I loved about the book that the most was that it's, it's a quick read. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I'm stressed out. It was like the great Gatsby or, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's a pretty easy read. So I liked it. And we'll talk more about that shortly. But the question is going to be, um, how long should I practice and how often? So you were kind of talking about five minutes. So, and I know this is a big theme of your book. You know what I mean? I, I read the back cover first, you know. Um, can you answer that question? How long should someone do it and how often? So I would say begin with five minutes and it has to be daily because it's oh, only oh. when you do something daily that you will start to see the results. Now, I would love people to meditate twice a day for five minutes if they can. But what I say is begin with five minutes, ideally in the morning. It will really set you up for the day ahead and see for yourself. I always say to my patients, begin with a daily meditation practice and see how you feel in seven days. Oh, that's interesting. You have a life transformation. <laughs> but what I am saying is that yeah. you will see a difference and it's subtle differences at first. Okay. And then you know, I've seen life transformations in the lives of my patients and, and clients and students. So, you know, begin daily, think five minutes, that's accessible, that's attainable, and see how you feel and you will start to see a difference. All right. I like that. I like the, the small goals and I like that. Give it a week, give it a seven days. Now, this one I could tell is someone who does meditate. So here's a cool question because I want to, I, I, I kind of have the same feeling. So they want to know, can I meditate in a chair or lying down instead of cross-legged on the floor. And I think that's the stereotype I always have when we say things like words like chakra and yoga. I, I always imagine the pose, you know what I mean? I gotta tell you, my posture isn't the best. And I, I'm like, wow, I wouldn't be mind doing the chair. So how would you address that question? 
I would say absolutely sit in a chair. I think very often <laughs> part of the problem is you yep. see people in Padmasana lotus pose, which most people can't even do and shouldn't. It's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, but aside from that, you don't yep. need to do that. And even, Dr. Yep. Raj, for, for, for a lot of people, even just sitting cross-legged on the floor is very uncomfortable. Yeah. And so the last thing that you want is you've got yourself into this position, your legs gone to sleep, your ankles hurting, your knees hurting. Don't bother <laughs> with any of that. I would say the only I encourage all of my patients to do it in a chair that and a chair with a back. So that way you have some support. The only rule in a meditation practice is the spinal column must be in a neutral position. So of okay. course that can be achieved in a chair or you can do it lying down as you would in Shavasana. I would just recommend that you don't have anything under your head. So the spinal column can really be in that neutral position. So just like okay. the yoga mat. But whatever feels best for you, the only rule is the spinal column is in that neutral position. Okay. That's it. So, I like and that. Frankly, meditate in a chair because that's accessible and that makes it accessible to everybody. I like that. Now, this is what I'm sure it's someone who's my, who is meditating asks this question. What should I do about the restlessness or discomfort I experience while meditating? So, I mean, there's two parts to that question. I would say if you're feeling discomfort because you're sitting in a position that is uncomfortable, okay. do not do that. Okay. So if you're sitting in a chair, that kind of takes the, the effort out of it. Because again, okay. for a lot of us, sitting on the floor, it just isn't what we're doing in the West. Okay. So it's uncomfortable, <laughs> right? Yep. So just uh -huh. don't do that. Yep. The restlessness is the nature of what we call in Eastern philosophy, the monkey mind. So. The mind doesn't want you to come to sit, doesn't want you to be still. It's going to do everything possible to take you out of the practice. Wait, so did you call it the monkey mind? It's called the monkey mind in Eastern philosophy, like a That's... monkey. <laughs> okay. So I teach uh, my patients simplistic mm -hmm. breathwork practices because it helps to bring the mind under our control sure. when we're focused on the mind. And again, I can share a five minute, uh, very simple breathwork practice that's free available via my website. So, and, and again, remember that we're just trying to create milliseconds of silence in between the constant, the average person is said to have over 60,000 thoughts a day. A lot of those are repetitive and a lot of those are negative. So we're not yeah. trying to create like canvas. Again, that's inaccessible for most people. We're just trying to create even a millisecond of silence in between the constant cascading thoughts. So we can feel an element of peace, a break, if you will, for the mind, for the body, and to continue to do the practice. You know, this is the other thing. People take one class and think they're going to be the master of meditation. <laughs> let go of that. Really, you know, one, one yeah. class, you're not going to have mastered anything, right. quite frankly, be it cooking, be it, you know, a work class, be it mm -hmm. asana. It's a practice. It takes time and dedication and motivation. So here's a question where maybe it's from a hardworking mom or a hardworking dad, a parent. You know, I got three kids, you know what I mean? So my youngest is about a year and a half. I know you got a three-year-old. So but they, they keep us on our A game, on our toes. <laughs> I can see myself doing this. What should I do if I keep falling asleep while I meditate? People are tired, and I'm sure that question's come up before. 
<laughs> That's actually very common for people who are new to a meditation practice, especially mm-hmm. that you actually relax. I get this all the time when I'm teaching new meditators where they finally relax and then they realize, wow, I'm exhausted. Yeah. And allowing themselves to relax, even as you know, as a sleep specialist, mm-hmm. even when it comes time to go to sleep, people can't relax. Mm-hmm. Of and course. So, through meditation, people actually realize how stressed they are, how anxious they are, how tense they are, and they're able to relax. And then they feel sleepy. What happens with a long-term practice is your meditation practice actually energizes you. You know, my son in his first year of, of being alive didn't sleep at all. So my morning meditation practice gave me the energy. Oh, okay, okay. So what I would also say is meditate first thing in the morning, ideally within the first 30 minutes of rising, if you can, or at some point in that first hour, because that will give you the energy, set you up for the day ahead and enable you to become more balanced. And if you are suffering from sleep issues, I would highly recommend a, you know, guided kind of imagery, a visualization, a chakra balancing meditation. For sure. Evening. And that's what my program is. The, the oh, nice. Meditation is an energizing breath work that sets you up for the day okay the evening meditation is a chakra balancing meditation which people often say to me oh i fall asleep in the evening meditation and sleep really well that's the goal so if the evening meditation you end up going to sleep just before bed that's perfect because you're getting yourself into that state to hopefully have that rem sleep and, and you know anusha I, I gotta tell you, we don't have enough time for I me. Mean, this is a whole separate podcast about sleep and what you do. And I just want to say that, you know, I would definitely refer patients to you because you're right. Being a sleep doctor, if there's anything I could do that could prevent someone from going on an over-counter, over-the-counter medication, prescription medication, something that just will really just help them transition part of their, their nighttime routine I think that's great. And I think I'm so happy and I'm very interested in your techniques at nighttime to uh, help that transition. That's, that's awesome. Um, You're going to like this one. So the question is very short and very open-ended. They want to know, how do I know if I'm meditating the right way? Is there some kind of balance checklist they should know if they're doing things right? I guess that's what the, the question is. So I would suggest guided meditations and there's, all, I mean, I'll share my resources, yeah. but there's Calm, there's Headspace, there's the Insight Timer, there's so many apps out there. Okay. And again, it's not really about focusing on outcomes and achievements here. Let go of the checklist, let go of the need to get things right, let go of the perfectionism that's a construct of, of the society that we live in and just focus on the practice itself. I mean, one of the long-term benefits of meditation, I mean, there are plenty, but one of them is that we become less reactionary and we're able to let go of that need to focus on perfectionism in everything that we're doing, which actually just creates more stress and anxiety. So don't worry about doing practice perfectly. That's not what it's about. Just focus on doing the practice itself. And then the benefits will unfold to you in due course. All right. You know, I love that. Now, you're so awesome. Thank you for answering all these questions. I'm going to tell you, everyone should like, uh, you know, donate to this book because you're getting all this free, awesome tips. Now, I got to finish it. There's three more questions before we talk about, you know, some more things. But I want to know this one. Uh, My listener wants to know, can I meditate while I'm driving my car or sitting in a computer? That was the question, but I'm going to add on to this. 
and I think you answered, but I want to hear it one more time. Can you uh, meditate while you're doing a run or any type of exercise? So there's, the question was driving the car, sitting at the computer, and I also want to throw in running an exercise also. Can you do it? So no, the, the very simple answer is no, that's not a meditation practice. What you can do is a mindfulness practice, very simply. So let's say that you're, okay. running, you're drawing your attention to your breath, you're focusing on the present moment, you're noticing your surroundings, running. You know, even I take my son, and I have been doing this for years, even before I had my son on a, on a walk, and we call it our mindful walk in nature, where we're fully present on what we're doing, we're noticing the animals that we see, we're noticing the scenery, we're actually making ourselves present in our surroundings, which again isn't something that we do. Driving, please practice mindfulness. That's why we have so many accidents on the road in some parts of present and aren't aware of any of the other cars around them. So I would say to answer your question, those yeah. would all if you're sitting at your computer and you're working, practice mindfulness. Be be okay. fully present in anything that you're doing at any given moment. Your meditation practice is separate to that. Well said. Now, this is kind of a spicy one, but um, how would you answer this? The question is, do I have to give up my religious beliefs to meditate? So I, I think that's another great, to, but they want to know. Okay. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely not. And again, this is kind of what often feeds Hindu phobia in the West. So Okay. In Sanatana Dharma or Hinduism, we don't have a conversion. We believe in all faiths. It says in the Rig Veda, one of our older scriptures, Ekam Sapipraha Bahuda Vedanti, which in Sanskrit means there's one truth. There are many different paths to get there. And so therefore we believe and honor all of the different faiths. And so there's that misconception because the Abrahamic yeah. faith have conversions. We don't. We can do them, let's say, as an example, that you're Christian. Okay. If you're meditating, you can think of Jesus Christ. If you're Muslim, if you're yep. meditating, you can think of Allah yep. know, and so forth and so on. So, And if you're an atheist or you're agnostic, you can think of whatever you wish to think about. Whether that's, <laughs> right. whether that's yep. light, whether that's the mother earth, whatever it is. So these practices, even though the, they originate in India, and I have to say this, the philosophy of yoga is a philosophy. It is not a religion. It was through colonization in India that Sanatana Dharma Hinduism, they even called it Hinduism. That's another whole conversation about <laughs> imperialism and colonization. Right. Yeah. Kind of very long story short, this is a philosophy that's associated with, I don't even like the word religion, with a faith. Okay. And therefore, because of the philosophy of yoga, it's open to everybody, irrespective of your faith. Uh, and religious beliefs. That was a great question. Then I, I, I like that. They that. So yeah. he, here, here's the last one, and it's a good transition question for where I want to head this uh, conversation. But the last question was, um, can meditation really improve my health? One hundred percent. There is there are no negative consequences <laughs> of engaging in a meditation practice that I've ever read in research or, or heard about, you will, I mean, if we think about health just very simply as we end, the breath 
when we take an inhale and we take an exhale, we're actually activating the parasympathetic nervous system in the body, which is the aspect of our central nervous system, as you very well know, that moves us away from the fight or flight to the rest and digest response. So it really is that that reboot when we're focused on breath work and meditation practices we're also releasing those elevated levels of cortisol in our bloodstream that contribute to hypertension high blood pressure diabetes weight gain lower immune function uh, you know and the and the list goes on lower life expectancy etc so only benefits can ensue from from really you know engaging in practice that works for you and what works for me may not work for you and that's okay what you know hopefully you'll find a practice that works for you and you'll see and reap the benefits wow now we're going to just kind of turn the ship a little bit and thank you for answering those questions i really wanted this podcast to be for my listeners but um you know there's so many things to admire about you but you know i would say really high on my list is, you know, I have a passion for, you know, anyone who has to be involved with has cancer and cancer is horrible, you know what I mean? And, you know, I'm not going to focus on one specific type, but, you know, I love your passion about breast cancer. It's something that affects many women and men, you know what I mean, across the world. And it's such a big role. And I know that you play such an integral part of it. We at USC have our own breast cancer center, and I'm very proud of it and the people that work here. And you have an amazing one at Hogue Hospital. And if I don't say it now, love Hogue Hospital. <laughs> They've always been such, you know, a supporter of what I believe in. And I've been there multiple times. That's how I met you. So can you, you know, explain to my listeners, how did you find your role specifically talking about, you know, being involved with breast cancer patients? And can you define better than I will what is your role in patient care with them? Sure. So Hogue actually found me as, you know, <laughs> that was divine, you know, intervention. Yeah. I was speaking at a wellness conference and the director of our Hogue for her Center for Wellness, Selfie Salibi, and actually heard me speak and thought I would be a wonderful match to come and be involved in the opening of their centers for wellness as they were just about to open in Newport. We now have opened in Irvine. And from there, I met Dr. Sadia Khan, who I've spoken to you about, who's the director of our breast cancer survivorship program. She's a breast oncoplastic surgeon. She's also the director of our metastatic breast cancer program. And then I met Dr. Heather McDonald, who's the director of our previvor program, which is the program that's focused on those patients that are at a high risk of getting either breast or ovarian cancer. So I've been working at Hogue for it'll be six years this year. Wow. Okay. Work, yes. My work with our with our cancer patients, specifically the breast and ovarian, is something that's incredibly dear to my heart. So my role at Hogue is as a wellness consultant leading on all of the meditation and mindfulness for the Women's Health Institute. And I also work at our Neurosciences Institute. As you can see, the book was uh, endorsed by the world-renowned Dr. Robert Lewis, who is one of our neurosurgeons that does amazing work. And he's really focused on virtual reality as well. And just working at Hogue is such a gift and a blessing. As you know, they're just amazing. They are. We have so many, as is USC, but we have so many cutting edge programs that we're able to do because of philanthropic support by our Hope Foundation. So all of my work, Dr. Raj, is actually funded by philanthropy. So oh. I'm very, very fortunate to be able to work as a woman of color in science and work in integrative medicine. Uh, and something I'm really passionate about is actually the research program that I'm involved with Dr. McDonald on and Dr. Khan as well, which is looking at perioperative pain management for our breast cancer patients with a specific wow. type of 
cancer surgery. And we're looking at the impact that introducing these people to a meditation practice can have on their mental health and well-being, but also on their pain. Yeah. How they feel post-surgery. And I can tell you this anecdotally from we are seeing a hundred percent success rate with people that have been inducted onto the program and completed the program. And that in itself is astounding where they've seen the impact of meditation anecdotally on their lives and minds and even with narcotics usage. Wow. As you know, in research, we pose questions. We don't even know if they would do it, quite frankly. <laughs> Uh, and so this is really groundbreaking research that we're doing at Hogue. This was a program that I created that is available also uh, via my website. And I'm really, really excited about that in particular. Yeah. Um, seeing the benefits of breast cancer patients with adopting a daily meditation practice and the impact that has on them in their lives and in their minds. And, and I don't want to downplay it because, you know, there is evidence-based medicine about what you do in breast cancer patients and other types of cancers for that matter. Now, I just want to know because I'm a curious person. So um, is your role from the minute they're diagnosed with breast cancer or where do you play the biggest part of it? And is it you leave, is everyone an individual and you lead up their follow-up to them? Or can you give me a kind of a view of your day of how do you approach a, a patient? So with the research, it's just people that are having a specific, a lumpectomy, a specific type of breast cancer surgery. Okay. And they have to meet some other requirements. So we're not looking okay. at people that have a long-term meditation practice. We're really looking, because that could skew the results. We're sure. looking at introducing these practices to people that are either new or have an inconsistent practice. So that's one element of my work. And I work with those patients that have been consented by Dr. McDonald onto this program. The okay. metastatic breast cancer program, I work with our metastatic group. And they don't even have to be patients of hope for this program. We're oh, really okay. meditation and mindfulness virtually to anybody that has metastatic breast cancer in Orange County. We don't specifically just focus on our own patients necessarily. It's open to anybody that hears about our work. And with our pre-viva program, I'm in clinic twice a month at Hogue, focused on meeting our patients to introduce them to meditation and mindfulness. Any of those who are part of our Hogue Breast and Ovarian Cancer Prevention Program. So, and I want to mention ovarian too. Like I was yeah. going to say, I mean, my, my heart goes out to everyone, but ovarian cancer could be, oh. um, do you, are you offering the same uh, role for the ovarian cancer patients? Is it after surgery, you really start intervening or was it? Well, you know? it's just those patients that are a part of that specific program. We okay. Do another, that, 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 basically that program is you have a genetic mutation. Oh, okay. You have a predisposition sure. to developing breast or ovarian cancer. Okay. That's that program. Yeah. Which is like a high risk program. So I'm not just generically working with our ovarian cancer patients or just our breast cancer patients. I'm specifically targeted on different programs. Gotcha. Programmatic efforts that we have at Hogue. So this leads, this leads to my next question because. I'm so in, I'm so impressed by it, and I really feel you know what I mean that many people can benefit from it. Are you going to try to move into just other disease states? Like, let me just be self-serving. I have many patients with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and they're they're struggling to breathe. And I think they I really wish I had more time and more expertise to just 
help them breathe, you know, and it just seems like, are, are you trying to take your expertise into other medical fields? Yes, I mean, I would love to work with you at USC with your patients and really start branching out in other areas uh, beyond what I'm doing, uh, because I would love to do more research and okay. really uh, focus, and we can obviously speak about that uh, offline, but really mm. focus on looking at the efficacy of these practices beyond the programs that I just work at at home. Because, mm. you know, and, and very often we have our breast cancer patients, even the last one that we just completed last week that we did a 26 week follow up, our research coordinator does that. We have a whole research department at home. And she said, I wish I had had this from the beginning, from the moment I was diagnosed. Yep. You know, and yep. so what we're seeing with our breast cancer patients that have been inducted and are completing the program, that they're just like everybody should have access to this. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I hope that my my goal would be to to have more funding to be able to introduce this to patients who are in desperate need of these holistic practices. And I want to make sure I, I answer, I get these two questions in because I, I just need to. But I want to say one thing is that. You know, I it really validates everything you said about the necessity because this is just a simple podcast that I do. I send a quick, hey, if you have any questions and look how many people responded. So I was, this is something important. So this is gonna be one of, I wanna make sure I, I spend time on this. Um, tell us about your new book. I'm holding it right here. I'll take many pictures and put it out there. Uh, the name of the book is called Meditation with Intention. And it says it's a quick and easy ways to create lasting peace. And so my two questions, and you could talk whatever you want is, who's it for? And what was your motivation about writing it? But please tell us. So the book is for everybody, anybody, <laughs> those that are new to a meditation practice, and those that have a practice, because what I see with people that say that they're meditating, and I always do this, like a poll, wherever I speak, it is maybe one person in the crowd that's meditating daily. And so you, you'll see, like, do you meditate? Hands go up. You know, <laughs> yeah. are you regular? Hands go up. Are you doing it daily? And then the hands go down. You know, <laughs> like, like one or two where they're just like, yeah, I'm doing it daily. That's the issue. Most people that are practicing asana aren't meditating. They're not really aware of the benefits beyond the physicality of the practice. And this yeah. is why the only reason that there's an eight limb path of yoga, the only reason that we even have asana, the physical, is to ready and steady the mind and body to come into that place of stillness and quiet within. So the book is for anybody, whether you have, you're completely new to meditation or whether you're not, you'll find hopefully some nuggets and pearls of wisdom in there. And the reason I wrote the book was that I realized, to, you know, what you're asking me now, I wanted to be able to get to a broader audience with my work. And I thought that the most accessible, the most cost-effective way to do that for people was to write a book that was uh, positioned at an accessible price point so that people could buy the book and start to integrate, you know, things into their daily life. And, you know, what I must say I'm truly humbled by is, first of all, there aren't, as you're fully aware, many South Asian women that even get a book deal to write a book about yoga and meditation. We're completely underrepresented. Even if we look at Hinduism, the top five books are all written by non-South Asians. You know, we can't even top our own category. So please, well so said. You can support greater representation of South Asian women of BIWOC and mainstream yoga and wellness by purchasing the book 
blog, by, by sharing it with your friends and family. I would greatly appreciate that. But the great news that I'm also seeing, I can't believe it, is that the book has been picked up internationally and to be translated internationally. So it's- Oh, no way. Yeah, it'll be translated into Polish. And there are a number of other countries that my publishing company is working on that are very interested in not only, you know, having the book in English, but actually buying the rights to sell it in their own language. And that is something, Dr. Raj, that I never, ever thought would happen. And That's amazing. That, you know, makes me so grateful and so happy that people are res people want the book and they want to translate it into their own language and make the practices work for them so i'm excited to hear you know your thoughts once you've had a chance to read the book in its entirety well i'll say this much you know you know for those listening right now I mean, your passion, and I felt it just from a little bit when I first met you, but now that I get to know you more and more and having this conversation, it just shines through the Zoom. It just shines on your face. And I know that everything that you say, that you believe, and I just feel it. So I think that a book always should represent who you are inside as an extension of your personality. And from the limited time I got to read this, I mean, I felt that it was engaging, it was easy to read, like you knew your target audience, you know what I mean? And, you know, to show that uh, I did take a good look at it, I kind of felt like sleep was at the end of the book. You know what I mean? I thought we could have had a bigger chapter. It's <laughs> 76, it's called The Power of Sleep. And I don't know, man, maybe I'm self-serving, but you <laughs> <laughs> and you know you're right the next book will focus more on that i think i was trying to to your point i didn't want to write a book that was five thousand pages long because nobody's going to read it i wanted to yeah. keep it short and i really wanted to cover more around that accessibility and intersectional piece that meditation yep. what is it of course it's available to everybody and by the way you can eat meat you can drink alcohol you can do what it doesn't mean that you can't meditate because again there's a lot of those preconceived notions that we're sold in in mainstream yoga that you have to be vegan and you have to do this and you have to and it's none of that everybody yeah. can meditate irrespective of where they are in in life and i think that's what i really wanted to get across in the book as well and I, I'm, I'm gonna be your manager i'm gonna give you like a, a business like a suggestion you know when i when i was reading your book and i did show it to my wife and everything I don't know what do you think about this idea and give me some credit if you if you haven't done it already you no know one would just be perfect I can see this book like, you know, when you're at the airport, just about the board of plane and they have like the little bookstores there. This is such a nice it's pocket size. It's a nice grab. It's a good price point. So if you haven't thought about putting in those airports, be sure to send me the profits for that, because that was my idea. <laughs> I love it. And I would love, you know, I, I would love to see it in airports because to your point, that's the perfect time to kind of get that target market. Yeah. I don't, you know, all of this is done by my publishing company, to be honest with mm. you, they do all the negotiations, et cetera, but hopefully, mm. One day soon, we'll see it at the Hudson News or, you know, one yep. of the airport bookstores because you're right. And, you know, quite frankly, when you do go to the mm -hmm. self-help or the meditation yep. sections, there is no representation of salvation. No, in those no I agree. It's all white folks and specifically white men. And that yep. has to change. 
No, and, and you know what? And there's, that's what I love about this podcast. There's so many things we could have gone on, but I wanted to get the basics today. But everything you just mentioned is what makes you special and your passion about gender, your passion about everything. I, I do love it. But my last question, because, wow, we, we really fold up that hour. <laughs> is, uh, can you just tell me for all my listeners that they want to find you or get more information about you? It's going to be on the, on the show notes and everything, but can you just uh, let everyone know how they can find you? Of course. So you can visit my website, Shanti within S-H-A-N-T-I-W-I-T-H-I-N.com. You can find me where I'm most active on Instagram at Shanti within. I would love to hear from your listeners once this podcast come out and connect with you all. And of course, you can buy Meditation with Intention from wherever you like, whatever your favorite bookstore is, you can purchase it. And I really hope that you do I'd love to hear your thoughts on my book. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, once again, it was a treat to have you today. You gave so many pearls and pearls is one of my favorite word. I think all of us finally know the difference between a meditation and, <laughs> and mindfulness. So last thing is, uh, maybe in the future, would you be nice enough to come back on the podcast to answer more questions? I would be honored, Dr. Raj. It would be my pleasure to do so. Oh, Anusha, you're the greatest. Thank you again. And all my listeners, stay tuned for the next podcast coming out in two weeks and take care. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.